0: Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boyce and inviting you to listen to our latest podcast episode number 965 with author Seth Goldenberg about his new book entitled Radical Curiosity, Question Commonly Held Beliefs to Imagine Flourishing Futures. This podcast number 965 is brought to you by Lamani DeSilva. And Michelle Burke, creators of a new fun activity card deck called Joy Cards. If you want to know more about Lavani De Silva and Michelle Burke, their course and programs, please visit their website at www.energycatalystgroup.com. And now for a featured podcast, please listen to my engaging interview with author Seth Goldenberg about his new book entitled Radical Curiosity Questioning Commonly Held Beliefs to imagine flourishing futures. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boyce and the host of Inside Personal Growth. Hey, and Seth, all my listeners know me. They just don't know you. Uh, Joining me is Seth Goldenberg. And Seth has a brand new book out, literally like two days ago, uh, called Radical Curiosity, The Questioning commonly held beliefs to imagine flourishing futures. I will, right off the bat, tell people, get this book. We're going to have a link to Amazon. This is really well-written, well-designed, well-thought-out, and Seth is the guy you're going to want to listen to today. And Seth, I'm going to take a minute to tell my listeners a tad bit about you because they know All they need to know about me, but they don't know what they need to know about you yet. And then when they're done with this interview, they're going to race out and get a copy of your book. So Seth is the founder and CEO of Curiosity and Company, a purpose driven design business and innovation studio propelling cultural change, formerly known as Epic Decade. Curiosity and Company has tackled a series of high profile projects to solve some of the most ambitious economic public uh, health. And environmental challenges with Fortune 500 clients such as Apple, American Express, and PepsiCo. Leading nonprofit organizations and regional governments, Curiosity and Company also hosts idea salons. uh, Custom-designed exclusive retreat and conference attended by Nobel Prize winners, senators, and executives from companies. Well, that's enough about you. Uh, The reality is he's a thinker, he's a thought leader, and he's a doer. Um, and I appreciate that about authors who are out there doing it. And he is. And one way to do it is to write a book so that everybody can pay attention to the message. And I think that's really important. Seth, if you would tell the listeners about how you came to write radical curiosity. Everybody's heard of curiosity. They just haven't heard the word radical in front of it, probably. And why do you believe that curiosity is on the verge of extinction with was you, quote, devastating consequences. And what I love about this, folks, just those listening, Seth is going to get you to think. If there's one thing that's happened is I think people have gone on to automatic pilot about thinking, right? And their critical thinking skills. So if there's any one person that could reinfuse the critical thinking skills, it's going to be Seth. So how'd you write this? Why'd you write it? And why do you believe we're on the verge of extinction with devastating consequences?
1: Well, what an introduction. I I love your energy, Greg. <laughs> it's, it's so wonderful to be able to visit with you. So thank you for that. Uh, I, I love that we're diving right into the juiciest one first as Might well. Might as well go.
0: Might as well get going. Let's, let's your do it, your right? family and your kids and your dog's going to show up. So let's yeah, make right. sure we, <laughs> that we get
1: there. You're so so true. Well, <laughs> Uh, I think to answer your first question, you know, um, I have had a design studio for uh, just over a decade, and I've been a practitioner of design thinking and all kinds of strategic cultural change uh, kind of work for almost uh, 25 years now. And for me, Radical Curiosity was my opportunity to codify a new blended practice that we uh, realize every day in our studio. So radical curiosity isn't just an idea. It's actually what we're calling the operating system of my creativity studio. And that term, to your point, that special word radical, uh, it it really comes from the Latin root of radicalis, right? Which really means getting to the roots of things. And I think what we've really come to realize, my team and I, I have biologists and educators and anthropologists, a very interdisciplinary kind of ensemble. What we've come to realize is that what we we really help leaders and organizations and individuals work on is what are the deep assumptions that are causing the models for how we live, learn, work, play, and sustain ourselves. And are those legacy models real? Can we upend them? Can we redesign them? If we want a world that is more flourishing, we probably have to ask questions, that curiosity part, but not just passive questions, questions that really get to the roots of things. And that's really what the book is all about. Well, what
0: I like about the book is it's uh, somebody always told me, you want to write a good book, uh, whisper in their ear the message they want to hear. In other words, they're like a good friend. I felt like this book was a good friend. Mm. It was actually speaking to something that I resonate with, so I wanted to read more and understand Mm -hmm. more. Plus, the way it's laid out and designed is is, uh, superior. So – you open the book with a story about Steve Jobs and his friend Johnny Ivey. Hope I got that right. In an op-end New York, uh, Wall Street Journal article as being the most curious person he'd ever known. Um, Seth, how is it that you define the radical curiosity and what is it about Steve Jobs that made him so radically curious? I agree with mm-hmm. his, with his buddy. But I also know there's other thinkers out there that have been radically curious beyond Steve jobs as well. And you might want to mention a few of those Mm. in in the answer to this as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I love that. Yeah. I mean, one of the pleasures of my life was working uh, intimately with uh, some of the executives at uh, Apple. Uh, It was actually one of our first clients when I formed my company and as a designer, Apple is like the demigod. Apple is, you know, Mount Olympus, right? Yeah. Johnny Ive is uh, uh, has really shaped the design field. Johnny uh, was, and will always have a legacy as the chief design officer who really forged a very special kind of friendship with Steve and the two of them really built much of apple and of course major figures uh, like tim have have uh, been extraordinarily influential along the way but i think the the creativity that johnny ive and uh, steve jobs shared why i opened there is you know when we put steve on a kind of pedestal so many of us right mm-hmm. he's such an iconic figure and i think there's still probably not uh, a great nuanced uh, understanding of what made him so special i mean even with the walter isaacson book on him and etc right
0: exposing think, things that you maybe didn't want to hear about him but
1: yeah right, right exactly you know. I mean, he's human. He's he's complex and Godly. Exactly. And human, exactly. Right? Is it, we're all like human? All, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, but I think that why I opened with that, I love. See, Johnny is also a very private person, and I thought it was very beautiful. And and I think she, uh, I think he, uh, he reveals an intimacy about naming curiosity as his view of what made Steve so special and so even though there's biographers and there's journalists and there's people who are one two to seven uh Kevin Bacon steps away from Steve to have Johnny such an intimate friendship say what made him special was his curiosity and he describes it in that passage as a ferocious inquiry into life yes and that that for me I think to your point that's not just a Steve thing Many leaders have that. We all may have that inside of us. And so I just thought it was a wonderful way to say, sure, Apple's a trillion-dollar company. We all hold their products in our pockets. But, you know, isn't it amazing? that the most intimate friend named wasn't his business savvy. It wasn't the trillion dollar impact that we all kind of feel overwhelmingly uh, brand idolatry for, but it was his curiosity that made him a great leader.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and, and reflecting as you're speaking about Steve Jobs, you know, I, I also reflect that what came up for me was Walt Disney, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and as a young lad, I think I was 6 or 7 I actually mm-hmm. got to meet him I shook his, oh, wow. I shook his hand oh, that's and you great. know you know the curiosity the man had and the and the fervor for life and
1: mm-hmm. and
0: to experiment and to not be afraid of risk and to go do the things that need to be done when you talk about curiosity it's like it's it's there tons of curiosity um uh-huh. you know you've hosted 3 thousand idea salons across the country over the last 10 years and you engage your clients to leverage questions and rewrite legacy as you say narratives that no longer serve them and you know I almost kind of look at them as our bias too right it's like we Mm -hmm. have been ingrained with these bias Uh, I always remember Margaret Wheatley used to speak about the ecosystems that we would live in and the effects that we've had on them. What have you learned about reinvigorating the power of human inquiry into life and being able to kind of sustain it? Because, you know, a salon is a salon. You're there for a day or two days or three days, whatever the retreat is, you leave. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, well, how do I sustain this energy yeah. and then insert it into my company into my people into my world into my design into anything and the reality is it's like how how do I imbibe this you know I, I take well, like let's let's drink it let's just like
1: <laughs> you know,
0: give, give me that and, and I think that is the million dollar question isn't it
1: right right. Yeah, absolutely. I I I I love your gesture. It's so wonderful. No, I, I look, and I and I'm not sure there's a a silver bullet. You know, I loved your description of the book uh in terms of uh you know, a a, a whispering uh you know, um, into the ear, right? The kind of seduction of it all. I mean, I think living a life of inquiry Embracing curiosity as a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the ultimate lifelong project. It's not a day or two or three at the retreat, but it's also not a single project, right? Or it doesn't show up in one part of your life and not another. I mean, I think it's really a mental model of how we show up to ourselves, how we show up for our people, how we want to contribute to the world. I think. For me, look, I began as an artist. I was the oil painter quite young, uh, exhibiting in art galleries and I, uh, I evolved into design. I, uh, am now an entrepreneur. I, I, I like to build businesses, it's almost like I see those as new canvases, new works of art. But I think being curious is about that same kind of Steve Jobs kind of, I'm, insatiable right i'm I'm, yeah. I'm constantly hungry and i loved your mention of walt disney there's you know there's a great quote he says we're curious we keep opening new doors into right?
0: imagination
1: absolutely you and know, i, I
0: and, and i would i don't want to interrupt you but i, would no, not say, at all. You know, I do this podcast show almost 16 years and mm. i always wonder the impetus and i had a little jewish mother that was the most curious person in the whole world. You could sit down with her, anybody she didn't know. And 20 minutes later, she knew everything about you, right? So so (laughs) I I keep thinking to myself that maybe my culture has inspired, you know, this whole, you talk about ingrating this in your DNA. I was kind of ingrained with it. I had a mother that, No matter who I brought over, she had 27,000 questions before they left. You know, even I was with... I I I had that same mother. (laughs) Honest to God, I went to um, the other day and I'm not dropping names here, but Grant Benning was the guy that first hired me. His daughter is Annette Benning. He's Mm. 96. Mm. I went to his house the other day and brought him lunch because he's not real ambulatory. So I brought him lunch and he sat there and he says, I remember your mother. And I was like, what? He said, do you remember that your mother had to interview me first before you took the job? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, she had all kinds of questions, didn't she? (laughs) (laughs) And seriously, he says, your mother was the only mother that ever I ever got interviewed by before anyone was hired.
1: (laughs) Well, I love that as an example, right? I mean, whether it's the kind of artist sensibility or there's something imprinted in the jewish cultural mindset yeah. i think there's lots of reasons that questions and curiosity guide different kind of uh traditions right
0: yeah yeah well you know you speak that we're in this cultural and uh, uh, in how do you say it i-n-t-e-r-r-e-g-u-n-u-m uh,
1: yeah <laughs> it's this concept that we're living in a interregnum, like cultural. Interregnum.
0: I want to make sure I got the right word right, yeah. which is in transition between fundamentally different states, uh, sets of value catalyzing an evolution in shared framework of the human experience. Hmm. That's a mouthful, but it's really pretty simple. And I'm going to say this that we will question the legacy narratives that in turn the norms, beliefs, and mindsets that we inherited from preceding generations. Speak with us with you would about these five pillars of radical curiosity and the shifts that we can make in our consciousness and worldview, because at the heart of this, at the true heart is really questioning The current worldviews and our beliefs and our perspectives, which is why the book is so intriguing to me and will be to everybody who buys it, because you can actually start questioning your
1: questions. Indeed, indeed. Well, maybe it'd be be helpful. Maybe just to even frame up what what is this interregnum idea first, because that might be most useful. I mean, to your point, it does sound like a mouthful, but actually. Think of society as a like your own personal laptop, and we install a new OS system. We're putting on Yosemite. We're installing Yosemite, or whatever the new OS system is. Catalina, and your computer,
0: Yosemite doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever it
1: is. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you, 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 your computer shuts down and it rewires the code. The code are guiding principles for how the computer operates. Correct. I believe that our nation, our society, our world is kind of going through an OS upgrade. I agree. And the interregnum is an idea that tries to describe that. So traditionally an interregnum is almost like a baton pass between governments, right? One party to another party one leader to another leader it's the space between two elections let's say that's a traditional on but i've kind of conceived i've proposed this new term what if not government but what if culture is going through that baton pass right and the reason i bring this up and i think it relates to your question is look so many basic human experiences Are getting rewritten right now. There are now more than 57 genders you can identify with on social media. I'm sure the individual that uh, first hired you at 90 plus years old may not have conceived of the very idea that we would in mainstream popular culture embrace 57 identities of gender So many ideas that we thought were unquestionable, like this is how the world is. This is how bank works. Nope. Too big to fail. The bank went away. (laughs) Thank you, economic crisis. So many things that were stable ideas are getting upended and reimagined and becoming more open. And it's a very exciting time to be alive, I think, because of that.
0: Have you... Would you say or would you agree with this comment that political structures, governmental structures, educational structures, our own identities, um, that it's somewhat messy? It's one thing to go to Apple and ask them to download Catalina 15.2.3 and make sure my system works. But as human beings, I think we've all gotten this a bit messy.
1: Um, absolutely i love that you said it like that because i i mean in some ways that passes the baton and i appreciate your, your very kind comments about the book because we have a series of diagrams that actually that in between space i actually kind of call the messy middle to your point that in between zone where it feels like a lot of friction almost like growing pains between one model and the next model. i think when you think about it this way when you read the newspaper you look at World events. It's helpful to conceive that ah, this moment happening, this protest, this governmental shift, this policy. These are indicators. They're little moments of evidence of that messy space, that friction you're talking about, right? Yeah, and it's you know
0: when you look at it. I I mean, let's face it. We, in a history of our lives, I'm 68 years old. Mm -hmm. So when you when you, your perspective about how the internet has sped up information and how we, we receive information, how we digest information, how we go through this actually allows us to, and, and I'm going to say it's been the evolutionary helper mm-hmm. uh, in this guy. I wouldn't say it's the only helper, but it certainly has been a big evolutionary helper right. um, in having us question and even all the way from democratization standpoint, all the way down to everybody in the world, because we all can carry, as you said a minute ago, this device and yeah. receive information to actually start to assimilate question and think about things, including interpreting different languages across the device. Right. Uh, well, anything you want to add to that or am I just. No, I, I, love,
1: I love where you're taking us because it, 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 aligns with an argument that I propose in the book that, I mean, as we both (laughs) do this gesture, right, a Hollywood film studio and all of wisdom of all libraries on the planet now fit in our pocket. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that knowledge has become a commodity. Mm -hmm. And so if knowledge is a commodity, then curiosity is... Not so much about the recall and regurgitation maybe of traditional education where we're memorizing information, demonstrating it in colloquial school, but actually curiosity is really about the discovery and the continual innovation of new knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So the danger is if we just rest on pre-existing knowledge and we're just administering the solution sets that already exist we begin to rest on our laurels and we no longer create new wisdom in the world
0: yeah and you know you ask a big question in the book and i i you know look my wife was a school teacher for 24 years so i mm-hmm. get it and this is around education this is around education mm. uh-huh. but learning. <laughs> learning learning so you propose a big idea in the book And you state that the compulsory education, or I should say education system, is a policy that requires school attendance by law. But what is education for and should it be compulsory, you ask? I mean, this is a salon question, right? You Hopefully you had a bunch of educators in the salon when you did this. That education is too big to fail, but maybe it should um that probably wouldn't go over too well with a lot of the bureaucrats in the education sector but they really need to think about it and that brought up this this little quandary that people have been having now about Biden saying he's going to actually release everybody from their debt from education and I'm like well hell I paid my student loans why shouldn't everybody else right so politically speak with us about the differences between education and learning and the movement of unlearning and unschooling because this is a big one.
1: No, I, I, I love I love the convergence of your uh, of your inquiry because you're you're pulling on some of my favorite and most dangerous ideas. I mean I think the the challenge and the provocation there is to say we have institutionalized things. Mm-hmm. We have um, maybe made the management and the techniques and the tactics more important than the origin of why we're doing things in the first place. And this is a problem across every sector, not just education. Sometimes I think we, we get so far downstream and we're moving the pieces, but we forget why we're even in the adventure to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it's that great quote from a uh, I think it was, uh, might've been Albert Einstein who said, you know, the only thing that gets in the way of my learning is education. Right. Right? And so I think for me, I I actually, I love learning. I'm a lifelong learner. I I would be in uh, school forever if I could. I think the question is... Well, you are. Yeah, well... (laughs) You're in the school of life right now, dude,
0: and you're learning, and you're a teacher, you're teaching,
1: well said, well said. Well, my wife is an educator. I fell in love with her and this beautiful school that she she helped uh, originate, which is all about uh, community and civic engagement. So I'm with you. I, I just think even with that example, school does not have to be the four-walled classroom. Right? Learning does not need to have curricular standards and bureaucratic committees reviewing you know, the intake of what you remember. I think that what we need to do in every one of these social systems, health, housing, uh, justice, learning, we need to remind ourselves, what do we even mean by these pursuits when we started them? We we kind of push the why aside. So the compulsory point is we set up these kind of paradoxes. Does everyone believe K to 12 public education is working and is the best it's ever uh, imagined itself. No, everybody's got their story. They say, well, I would do this different, do that different. It's not great. If anything, it's, you know, really complex. I'll get to your unlearning question in a minute. But then we say, but by the way, if you don't go, we're going to throw you in jail called truancy, right? I mean, we've set up these paradoxes for ourselves. And so rather than ask hard questions, be radically curious and say, what do we really mean? What is the purpose of learning in our society? Is it for enlightenment? Is it for citizenship? Is it for skills? Is it beginning me on a labor journey so I could be a worker? I mean, under what ideology, under what belief system did we even give birth to the system? And we forgot yeah,
0: but, to have that chat. But we haven't had that chat because the system – I'm sitting here looking at two degrees, a master's that's on my wall over here, mm-hmm. and a bachelor's degree, and my high school diploma isn't up. But each, each time, it's a piece of paper that says you've accomplished something because the system created this these diplomas to say – Oh, you can get a better job if you have that diploma or you can do whatever. I personally haven't found that the diplomas were what created my future. Right. What created my future for me was me, my -hmm. ability to learn on my own Mm -hmm. and my insatiable desire to continue learning. Thus, the podcast show, right? So, you know, I love it. Talk about unlearning. Because we got uh, to unlearn those diplomas to actually check the box in your salon that says we're going to reform the educational system.
1: Well, I think it has a lot <laughs> to do with these ideas of the legacy narratives, right? We all around us, there are messages and frameworks and models that we were born into. Right? Yeah. yeah. Money exists. US is a capitalistic society. These are the religions. This is the town. This is your family. I mean, we are born into a variety of constraints that were decided by people before we got here. That's absolutely right. And for me, I think unlearning is about and I love that you opened by talking about critical thinking, right? Uh, I thought that was quite beautiful to bring the discussion right there. I think we don't do enough thinking about thinking, mm-hmm. a, a kind of uh, a level of uh, self-awareness and collective awareness of well, where did these ideas come from? They just came from mere mortals who were here a little earlier. This, you know, I, I saw this great quote once that said, "History is peer pressure from dead people." It's like, you know, it's like, and, but there's also these beautiful, you know, I I think it was Benjamin Franklin talked about, you know, we are all a part of the next revolution, right? Every, every generation needs a revolution to upgrade the rule and the model of society that works in context to now. So I think unlearning is about deprogramming the legacies and inheritance that maybe doesn't work in context anymore i mean when we said earlier how might we see those upending indicators is and and that that you talked about it, that messy part the the kind of um those birthing pains of a society right. through an os upgrade imagine unlearning racism in this country is black lives matter and the protests and the events over the past two to three years, are they an isolated event or part of a narrative arc that's a part of that operating system reboot? Right. Well, Imagine look, that's been going day.
0: on. The, that's been going on since well, since the dawn of time. But it's in our air. You're in my air since we've been brought up the '60s. You know, absolutely. So, absolutely. You, you know, the the thing that I would say though is based on kind of the learning unlearning dialogue we've been having
1: mm.
0: is in, in this society in particular, Western industrialized society uh, seems to be very, uh, I get The term I'm going to use, you're probably not going to like it, but I think we've created more lemmings than we've ever created in our life. Um as a result of the structural, the norms, the beliefs um, that we run with in our own mind. And the very little questioning about whether or not that's where I want to be. Now, we did have a great rising here with COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, a, uh, you know, everybody's saying the great resignation. I'm resigning from the job. I'm, I can't find people to work in these jobs. I can't blow whatever it might be. Mm. Uh, from a good standpoint They're questioning something very deep And I think in a lot of people's cases Very spiritual Uh It, it is a question about My life And how I'm going to live it I mean a very simple question that maybe you never even asked Prior to COVID Because so many people die So it's your finitude oh, Ah yeah, well if the, my biggest fear is death And that's what Awoke me to Questioning Right and, and usually in spiritual cases, it does. You know, somebody has a near death experience because I do a lot of shows on spirituality. That's mm. it. But me that's the day, that was just my comment. I yeah. think this, I think this,
1: you speak in your book. Do you, do you mind if I re- reply? No, to no, it? go ahead. <laughs> I'd
0: love to, ha- you know, have a dialogue about yeah. <laughs> this.
1: <laughs> no, no, just because just I think it's so important what you're. Saying, so I didn't want us to move too fast from it because I think you're really getting to something critical. I mean, my version of your lemmings comment mm-hmm. is the opening chapter to build a case for radical curiosity. The kind of sound the alarm is I believe that curiosity is an endangered species. Yeah. I believe that we are not asking enough questions and we are too easily comforted by the autopilot of how the world has been set for us and that's a dangerous place to be and I think it leads to some very real damage that we're seeing in the world whether it be climate whether it be a a, a capital riot attack I mean these are not accidental these are expressions of the absence of inquiry the absence of questioning and curiosity. I think what you're what you're also adding there, you know, on your second part, which I think is, I mean, you're like speaking my language, brother, right? <laughs> um, I, I just think, you know, it's an extraordinary time. And it's like I wanna scream from the top of the hills. What are we doing? We have yeah. so much potential, so much beauty, so much wonder. And we're squandering it, right? And well, so it's a little... <laughs>
0: radical curiosity though, in my estimation, mm. and, and I, I hopefully you can connect the dots here if you would, mm. but when people get comfortable and they're not uncomfortable, okay, when they just get so comfortable and you live in such an affluent society where you've got everything. Um You have the time to ponder and ask those questions. Mm -hmm. The thought would be, are you? Or are you squandering your time doing things that are not advancing your learning? Okay. And I think there's many places in this world Mm. where there's a lot of discomfort right right now. Okay. Okay we can look at ukraine we can look at russia we can look at all these other places Sudan, lots of discomfort and we live in a a society in particular talking you and me and probably mm, three quarters of the population in the united states Mm -hmm. relatively comfortable which is what the uprising outside has been saying for a long time you guys are too damn comfortable right right? (laughs) so um at any rate, without me going too well, far, I don't want to go on amiss on that because I got another great question for you. But yeah, go ahead. Okay. Go, go ahead. On. You want to comment I, on well,
1: it? You're raising it so so one of the ideas. So the book at the at the conclusion of the book, I try and take these whispering general, uh, generous uh stories that you know is, is a good book as you described, uh, through these kind of vignettes, I distill those vignettes into what I call twenty-eight building blocks. Mm -hmm. for radical curiosity. One of those is uh, something I think you're hitting on, which is what I call question inequity. So we know about economic inequity and the kind of disparaging uh, rate of value and the kind of human rights and conditions that are coming from that globally and in particular here in the United States. But I think one of the ways I'm trying to flip that is say, well, questioning and curiosity may have become a kind of luxury good, to your point, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who has the power to be asking the questions? Who sets the agenda? Do I even, if I'm trying to just survive in an economic condition, just to make it through the day, do I even have the luxury of having the imagination to set curiosity as a kind of guiding North star in my life or in my work, that itself is rare air. So I think you're talking about an inequity that goes far beyond economics, but the rights and the responsibility for the capacity to question.
0: Well, what I like about what you're doing in your salons, the idea salons is Every race, every ethnicity, every economic people with depravity and people with lots of money can come into a salon, right? And it's through that diversity that you're going to actually find the best questions asked. Mm. And I, I think that's the state you're creating. Now, yes, yes. Okay. You know, you speak in your book about one of the rarest pleasures, which was uh, taking a walk with Maurice Sendak, uh, the gentleman, legendary author of Where the Wild Things Are. And actually, when I focused on that and I saw how he was so curt in the way he answered some of those questions, I realized I, I didn't have a disdain for him at all. I was just kind of like, well, wow, this guy is just really abrupt. It's like, that is the way it is. Don't question it. Why are you, you know, questioning it? Um, what did you learn about storytelling and how can stories become catalysts for regenerative learning?
1: Hmm. Yeah, he sounded
0: I, like a real interesting dude.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, like many millions of Americans, grew up with him as uh, yeah. a kind of a nighttime uh, ritual, right? With yeah. my- yeah, and uh, I, it was it was a rare pleasure because uh, he was an icon for me. I saw him at the end of his life. He has a kind of it's not just the abruptness. I'm I'm able to say and confirm from first person experience. There's a kind of very beautiful curmudgeonness that yeah. Maury yeah. held you in said, his life. You said right? he
0: was a curmudgeon. Yeah, uh,
1: absolutely. <laughs> but but the most the most sincere and the most uh rare eyes to see the world and i think you know i i use him in the book as an example to talk about the power of stories and how storytelling and the way that narrative has become such a critical way to organize our lives we think about uh our ourselves our families our careers even even the order of time that there's a narrative arc it really has kind of in camouflage, seeped into every facet of our lives. And it helped me understand this notion of legacy narratives and new challenger narratives as a way to kind of see sociologically about how ideas change and they move through the world. And so I think when I use this word regenerative, I mean, we're talking a lot about regenerative agriculture right now in society, regenerative ecosystems. And I think generative or regenerative storytelling or in your question, learning it's there's a way in which stories can revive and aliven our uh, sensibilities and, and bring us, us alive. Right. And I, I think he's a master at that, but what was fascinating is as, as those of us who know that book, well, he left space for us to complete the story ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think great stories are not a sideline passive sport. You are, as a reader, completing the narrative. Mm -hmm. You are a participant, an actor in the story. The actual quantity of words in Where the Wild Things Are is like less than 100 words. And between the poetic of the sentence and the beauty of his illustration and the mind of both the reader and the listener, we can complete that world. We can complete the story. And I think regenerative is really about the invitation to participate and co-author what comes next.
0: Well, you're activating imagination. You know, kids that would read that book, or the parents would read it to them. You activate that imagination, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about. And I, I remember, I'm going to make a comment here, just a comment. I mm-hmm. not that long ago I had Rebecca Costa on here, social biologist who wrote Watchman's Rattle, and she wrote another book on the verge. And I and I said, you know, if we have all this analytics and data these days that can tell us and predict the future and global warming and everything that's going on, and I, I said. Why is it that as a species, we wait so long to take action, to do anything? And she paused for a minute and she said, because as a species evolutionary, we really haven't evolved that much. Um, That's the way we're born, you know, (laughs) kind of, you know, the fight or flight kind of situation I'm talking about. And it's really interesting because you're proposing something actually activating something to get people to go into a salon where they might wait, 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 wait until, like you said, a global warming is at a complete place to devastate the whole globe. And we're going, oh, my God, now we've got to do something about it. You know, I always thought that that interview for me brought out in me, it's like. Holy Christ, we've been around as a species for thousands of years. Why in the hell haven't we been able to evolve this limbic system that's in here that just keeps firing back the same way? Now, you state that participation is a prerequisite for the democratic conversation. It's the key indicator for health of the public sphere. How can we compel government to evolve along with the values and needs of citizenry and what new designs could be introduced to bring a culture of curiosity to government oh boy this is a juicy question um (laughs) because i don't know when government's ever going to change and i think everybody out here keeps looking at it and saying where are the leaders
1: absolutely absolutely well i think you know What's special about democracy, as you suggest, uh, is it, it is a participatory process, not unlike this regenerative storytelling idea. And so it's interesting that, like, think about a presidential election and how we line up on stage the leaders who propose solutions, They propose, go to my website. You'll see I have a healthcare plan all laid out. It does this, it does that, does that. Now, I'm a solutionist like the best of them. But actually, I'd love to see the day where a leader proposes a process, not an answer. Mm. Wait, so you, you have all... Oh, on your website, you have the answer for education, transportation, and climate. So, oh, so we're, we're eradicating curiosity. There's nothing new to figure out. And I, as a citizen, I'm just supposed to choose which solution is the right one. Or no, I'm supposed to put
0: my faith in you because you've given me the solution and now I can just go to sleep.
1: <laughs> right. Well, right. That's the there goes your left Oh, right? you're gonna
0: you're gonna yeah. do this. You're gonna do that, and the world's gonna be wet better for the rest of our lives. And so, okay, I can just. I, mean,
1: I, I would love to see a presidential candidate who stands up and says, "You know what? I don't know the right answer to health care, but I don't think there's one. And I think what I would do as president is to create." Dozens and dozens of grand experiments and bring people together who have experience and expertise and passion for the future and begin a portfolio of many experiments to innovate and find what is right for our nation at this moment in history. And let's make an era. I mean, I think of the JFK New Frontier era. We didn't know the answer is, this is how you get to the moon. We said, we're going to go to this destination. And the project is the process of getting there.
0: Yeah. No. what you're saying is what needs to happen. The question is, what needs to happen to have that happen? I think you need
1: to get more politicians in your salons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I was, I write a little bit about, and I was a big fan of Andrew Yang just as a yeah. really outlier example of a presidential candidate. I, you know, I had a little bit of a, a personal relationship with him, and I was a big supporter of just, just shaking up and introducing unexpected ideas. And yeah. look, I think to your point, it, You know, it's not a fatality of, you know, whoa, government is over. I do agree with the question where have all the leaders gone. But I think what we probably need is leaders from unexpected places. What I loved about Andrew is he was an entrepreneur, not a a lifetime government leader. And I think bringing people in from other sectors that have not been career government or political operatives or or elected officials can really uh mix up and remix almost like a hip-hop uh you know remix album like what would it look like if I I'd love to see Jose Andres the chef become president of the United States. You know, I mean obviously you know he's not uh from the United States, he's from Spain. But I mean it'd be really fascinating to understand the social entrepreneur, and the other kinds of qualities that we probably need now that are actually exhibited in other domains than government, but government would be well to embrace.
0: Yeah, it would bring some interesting perspective to the table regarding these potential solutions or even testing solutions. Mm -hmm. Now, I I loved your little part in the book, You state the greatest threat to curiosity extension of dialogue. Exactly what you and I are doing. You speak about the pop song, 2016's, We Don't Talk Anymore. And I didn't go to YouTube to go look at the song, but I do get that it's had 2.5 billion views. You state that we're losing our ability to converse, to exchange ideas, to find common ground. If you would speak with the listeners out there about some of the recent evidence of this inability to dialogue, and the antidotes for this problem. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, you already mentioned Black Lives Matter. You've already mentioned, you know, the debacle with the environment, you know, the CO2 emissions and global warming. Uh, there's many of these problems, but the question is, well, what are the anecdotes?
1: Well, I think that the, the, the we don't talk anymore uh, module uh, chapter, if you will it's really about the art of dialogue uh less than these kind of big world uh conflicts or projects or events uh but they're they are the sources of well how do we converse and cooperate to deal with them to your point right Mm -hmm. um i think it's kind of very basic and very human and very um almost more accessible than say the the scale of climate or race, it's just like, how do we, how do we sit at a table yeah. and, and be with one another? And, you know, I think it's interesting, right? There's, there's a lot of evidence of that to your question of the inability. I mean, I mean, even the idea that there's almost like entirely new lexicons about, you know, uh, about gaslighting and about uh, the, the, these kind of things, um, uh the 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 chaos of fake news i mean there's like new devices <laughs> you know yeah. you know also literally addictive social devices there's all kinds of interesting variables that seem to be undermining our ability to just be with one another uh and and hear one another and actually it's interesting because you've mentioned islam several times but One of the unique and and most important characteristics of a salon is that they're essentially unscripted. It's not a conference where you have a sage on stage, as I like to say. Right. It's literally almost set up like a three-day dinner party. And it's fascinating because some people feel very uncomfortable in the absence of that structure that they're used to. When it's unscripted, when we say, look, here's a question, and we'd like you to take a full day to explore it and to not have the distractions or the interventions or the channels that we usually navigate, those that are kind of like mediating devices. That It makes us a little more naked, a little more, you know, intimate with one another. And it's fascinating to see what leaders thrive and what leaders flourish in that and where people need to kind of find their footing. So we've been kind of doing this experiment about how to set the conditions for people to hear one another and just revive that art of conversation. And it's fascinating, you know? Well, I think that
0: uh, they, they're they uncomfortable, number one, too, when they come into an environment like that usually because that's not what they've experienced. That hasn't been what the norms are. That hasn't been, right. been set. Right. Um, two. I remember doing this work at many places where we we had just a talking stick, and we would pass the talking stick around and follow the Native American kind of philosophy about that. A bit. We go into Levi Strauss, and we were handing mm. and we were handing the talking really? stick around. Right. I, lo- I love that. Um, there's a guy in Minnesota that run the ran those salons, and he's still doing them. I'm going to introduce you. To oh, really?
1: Okay. okay yeah. Cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um. But I agree with you, you know, just to have that dialogue, to have that interaction and not be distracted by a device or look up an answer on the device. Oh, I can Google that. I'm not going to, I'm going to go see what Google has to say about that. I think is, is really, really important work that you're doing. And I want to tell my listeners, you know, Seth's books here, uh, go get it. Just go get it, read it. <laughs> it, 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 it's it's great. It's a great book. Go to his website, uh Curiosity and Company. Um, you, you're just type in Curiosity and Company, and it's going to come up. uh It's a wonderful website. You're going to learn more about him. You're going to learn more about the book. Uh, you can learn more about what he's doing and his salons. One last question. Uh, good. I found this book is one of the most thought-provoking books I've reviewed in quite some time. Um, It provides guidelines and ways to shift our thinking and our worldviews if people take it and use it. Um, What advice would you like to leave the listeners with that they can apply to their work and their personal life Mm. that would transform their levels of curiosity to become
1: radically curious? Mm what what a what a juicy way to conclude! <laughs> I love the gift that we're giving each other. Uh, you know, I think it, it's a term we probably we uh spoke about indirectly, but maybe didn't even use this specific word, but I think that asking questions and really stepping into a radical curiosity. Is about reclaiming power, and it, it's almost like the more optimistic flip of your lemmings model and my endangered species concern, which is that uh, d- don't give up, don't don't sign off, folks. Right? Uh, it, it's not the Matrix, <laughs> right? <laughs> we we have an extraordinary amount of power to grab the reins of our lives and the work that we do and construct wildly beautiful meaning. And without questions, we resign that power. And so for me, the kind of call to action and the thing that I would do is I would remind ourselves that questioning is a form of power. Oh, certainly. Not not only that, a form of freedom.
0: Um, because it liberates you in having a feeling, not so much of knowing, even if it's of not knowing, mm. but it's the fact that you took the time to question, right? And as you said, you're a solutionist. I, saw, I heard that in one of the things. Well, okay, so you're going to take the pieces, put them together, any designer does, to come up with a solution. You're a designer. Artists do the same things. Right. I wrote I wrote a book on intuition. You're going to listen to intuition and you're going to either respond or ignore it. But the key is it's fundamentally going to um, excite your intuition. It's, it's going to help you get in touch greater with that uh, in a greater way and in a way to listen to it. And then, most importantly, take action on it. Believe in it, um, Seth. It's been a, just an honor and pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I could I could have stayed on and asked a lot more. I skipped three or four of the questions, but only because of timing. Um, Absolutely, I totally appreciate what you're doing. I wish you all the best. Let's stay in touch.
1: I love um, that. No, thank you, know, you so much for your. Your kindness. I, I love it. Namaste
0: uh, to you and to everybody there at Curiosity and Company to keep up the work. I'm going to have to come in, into a salon.
1: There you
0: go. You. I would love I'm, to do that.
1: We'd love to have you. A delight. Have Thanks, a great uh,
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support.